This year's donations might go to, say, the geology department. Oh dear, not the dirt people. Geology is the study of pressure and time. That's all it takes, really. What kind of activity has turned the lake massive? Look, I'm just a geologist. I like rocks. I love rocks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Geology Flannelcast. My name is Steve. Hey, everybody. This is Chris. Good day. This is Justin. Nice. That was a wonderful take, too. For all of you who are non-Patreon members, I literally messed up the first three seconds of the podcast. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that that's why I nailed it because yeah, usually the pressure I'm was off of Jesse. Yeah, and because it was all on Steve. Well, welcome to the premier geology podcast, everyone. The Geology Flannelcast. Also, uh, today is uh, seven eleven day. July eleventh is the day we're recording this. So, um, happy All American Pet Photo Day, uh, National Seven <laughs> Eleven Day, and more importantly, happy National Mojito Day. Ah, that'll ah. take. Yeah, because I think uh, National Pina Colada Day was yesterday. So um, um, I can oh, actually look that up for you. Um, I was good. It was. You were right. But it was also National wow. Kitten Day yesterday as well. Pina Coladas and kittens. That's how I spend most of my Sundays. Uh, also, they released the first images from the James Webb Telescope today. Really? Ooh. Not yeah. blurry ones, huh? See, I know they released the blurry ones and they're still calibrating it. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty. It was just like a deep field image. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so it's like you're getting 13 billion year, you know, galaxies. Any aliens year. yet? And that, I didn't really zoom in, so maybe. But uh, I just fully expect to see like Marvin the Martian with his cannon pointed right at Earth. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty wild, though. Like you can see the gravitational lensing of some of the like there, there's bends in some of the galaxies oh that's oh. massive objects in front of them it's really sweet that yeah. is amazing kudos to close personal friend of the podcast albert einstein for yeah. first discovering that or hypothesizing what, that right he really nailed it <laughs> he did like, a good job not too shabby although yeah. you know what he didn't nail was quantum physics he didn't he didn't like quantum physics well spooky yeah spooky, yeah Spooky action at a distance. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm going to give him a buy on that since, you know, he did yeah. accomplish a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All so. right. Yeah, he gets this one pass. <laughs> Einstein. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's, but, it's, 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 it's a pretty crazy. I mean, just this is the last thing I'll say about it. Uh, if you look at the image, <clears throat> there's this super bright, you know, star that has like, you know, it's these um big beams coming off it just because it's like reflecting and it's basically a star in the milky way that's just brighter than everything else it's like come on get out of the way get out of the way you jerk yeah, we're not here to see you way to photo oh, bomb yeah. way to photo bomb this uh first selfie oh yeah look at that i'm looking I've, i'm looking at the pictures right now everything it looks like it's uh, almost like a uh, like a fisheye lens yeah yeah it's kind of crazy yeah wow that's cool. You see all the different. That's crazy. It just looks like a bunch of different galaxies just like tossed out there. Like, all right, yeah, there you go. yeah. You zoom in, you can see like the spiral galaxies. It's really wild. And, and it's yeah. funny because they just point it at a dark spot with like almost no light in it, and then it's just like boom. We're gonna just kind of check this out and see what's up. Good God, that's overwhelming. Yeah, 
How like, many galaxies? There's almost. I'll I'll go on record and say there's too many stars. <laughs> too many stars. What are you doing, stars? Take yeah. that, stars. Three hundred sextillion. Yeah, that's too many. Yep. Well, it only cost them ten billion dollars for that picture. I tell you what, it's well, so far every picture the price comes down a little bit. Yeah. So then, if you get two pictures, each picture is worth five billion, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So that I think they're going to do the big dump of uh, photos tomorrow. Gotcha. So they just uh, uh, they just trickled out the little teaser, huh? Yeah. Wow, that is cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we are not talking about the James Webb Telescope today. What are we talking about today, nope. gentlemen? We are not talking about James Webb. Well, we we did past tense. Now uh, we got a little topic today called the Gaia hypothesis. So, dum, dum, uh, dum. this so we're kind of. So let's see, last episode, we kind of talked, last episode got a little philosophical, right? We kind of went off about um, mineral formation. Yeah, mineral, that's, yeah, yeah, minerals, uh, new way to classify minerals. And we got talking to how uh, life uh, affects minerals um, and you potentially looking at minerals to uh, for evidence of life on on other planets right so it got me thinking and kind of went down this rabbit hole this week and so now we're going to talk about more of a big picture thing about about life on earth with the gaia hypothesis so to summarize this up really fast um just for like the one sentence summary here the gaia hypothesis is basically saying that the earth kind of acts like its own living entity kind of all the uh, uh, i guess that's that's the the way that it, it not exact it's they're not saying that it's uh make it perfectly clear they're not saying that it's uh like an actual living organism but th- there's a lot of similarities on how the on how systems of the earth kind of everything's all interlinked together uh, yeah so it proposes that all organisms and their inorganic surroundings on earth are closely integrated to form a mm-hmm. single and self-regulating complex system. Yeah. And uh, basically different systems and earth kind of keep each other in line and it keeps the earth as this, uh, as this habitable, um, well, this habitable location really it doesn't as in, in terms of habitability, it hasn't really changed. Like we'll, we'll have things that affect the earth and it kind of, there's, it's almost like there's a series of checks and balances that kind of, you know, bring it back in when things start getting a little crazy, a little, um, so it kind of, kind of keeps things in that, equilibrium. I mean, that's at the moment it's working out for us, mm-hmm. but it's, it's always something where like, <clears throat> when we talk about climate change, which is at the moment, I would say not great, uh, trending to very bad, <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes when you talk to people and they're, they're very like doomsday about it, which I try and stay optimistic. Got to have a little hope, but they always talk about like, you know, the, the planet is dying. And I always think or say like the planet will be fine. Yeah. Human's ability to survive on it is, is the real question. Yes. But the planet itself will rebound and it'll be fine. Yep. Yeah. It's called a planet full of cockroaches. (laughs) Um, so 
let's do a brief little kind of history on, on how this came about. Um, the hypothesis first uh, was formulated by James Lovelock uh, in the in the 1960s, and he kind of uh, kind of was pushing this through. Named it after Gaia, or like the the uh, Gaia was a, a mother entity in, in Greek mythology, um, and then it was later also incorporated by a microbiologist in the 1970s named Lynn Margolis. And uh, the two of them kind of uh, put this hypothesis out. So it's extremely heavily criticized, by the way. It's not like, uh, as, as all good ideas in science are, um, but uh, it was, it's not like, well, especially at first when this, this hypothesis was, was thrown out there, people were like, yo, 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 yo. Okay. Okay. You're saying what? That the earth yeah. is like living? Like, I, really? <laughs> I, like, I would say. Okay. I was going to say, I, yeah, it, 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 it sort of peaks a little bit where people are like, all right. And I think it's sort of fallen out of favor a bit, a little, would you say? Uh, I think that it's actually gained momentum recently. Yeah, um, a, I, you, you would know better than I. Well, initially you had some like big wigs, like uh, you ever hear of a guy named Richard Dawkins? Yeah. He was just like, yo, <laughs> <laughs> I let's. Uh, you know, so yeah. James Lovelock is still alive. I wanted to get, the, he was born in 1919. Oh, he's yeah, about he's to, like, he's about to turn in on the 26th of uh, July. He's going to turn 103 years old. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. Good for him. That's insane. I, I do. I love his books. I don't know if you're going to talk about him more, but I, the titles of his books get more and more, uh, I don't know. They sound like movie titles. So <laughs> what are the names? I, I don't remember that. I, I, I saw it briefly, but. So, I mean, he has early, like in, in the 90s, in, 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 the, in the 90s. Actually, he has in the, in the 70s, he wrote uh, The Quest for Gaia. But then in the 90s, he has The Ages of Gaia, 2000, A New Look at uh, Gaia, A New Look at Life on Earth. And then 2001. Gaia Practical Science, 2000, you know, Homage to Gaia, 2005, Gaia, Medicine for an Ailing Planet, 2006, Mm. The Revenge of Gaia, 2009, The Vanishing Face of Gaia, a final warning, colon, enjoy it while you can. Wow. He's definitely getting more. uh, That's like the Fast and Furious franchise over there. Yeah. Well, 2014, he wrote A Rough Ride to the Future. (laughs) So. Uh, a rough ride to the future, Gaia Drift. Uh, it, it wasn't called Gaia, Gaia Drift. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jesse. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, initially there was a, there's a lot of controversy over this. Just kind of like, and they're not saying that this uh, that the Earth is this um, it's this like sentient being kind of, but um, more or less that the, just kind of like the different, there's, there's a series of feedback loops that kind of keep everything in line. All right. And we're going to get into some of these, some of these different, um, uh, systems that are, you know, that, that, that are, um, you know, kind of being held steady by really by other systems, by life. And, um, and cause you, you know, one of the, when you look at the earth compared to like other, 
other um, rocky planets in our solar system, specifically like Venus and Mars, right? Um, Venus and Mars don't have any biosignatures like Earth does. It's just that Venus and Mars, for all intents and purposes, look like what Earth would look like if there was no life. It's just, uh, you know, and one of the things is that they have a, a, an atmosphere that's mostly made of CO2. You have an atmosphere that's made of mostly CO2, as far as we know. Now, once again, this is kind of a continuation from last week. We're dealing with one single data point here. So, but according to, you know, if you want to compare it to life on Earth, uh, if the Earth was 100% CO2, it would be like, you know, it'd be for all intents and purposes considered a dead planet, which, which is a, a, an interesting thing because, like I said, kind of c- continuing from last week, we were talking about would we be surprised if we found if there uh, one of the Martian rovers found evidence of of life on Mars, and and we we were all pretty much like uh, no, we wouldn't be surprised. Um, that would be uh, kind of you know there, there's so much life on Earth, it wouldn't be surprising that there would be something on, on Mars. But after reading about this a little bit. Some people are saying like, no, absolutely. There's not gonna be any life on Mars because if there was life on Mars, it would be more, you'd, you'd see more evidence in, in the atmosphere. More of these feedback loops would be feeding into each other and more of this, uh, I guess, uh, what's the term? Like uh, it, you'd see more, ev- it, because of that, you'd see, uh, you'd see more evidence in the atmosphere. Basically, it's kind of an all or nothing thing. Either you have a lot of life or you, you don't have that much, or you, either you have a lot of life or you have no life. And that's kind of what, some people are, you know, obviously we, we don't have an answer for this, but some people are kind of hypothesizing that with all the search for, for life on Mars. No, and I, I believe that to a certain extent, but at the same time, time is a factor, you know, Mar- Mars and Venus have been around for f- four and a half billion years too. And, you know, a lot of stuff can happen in four and a half billion years and a lot of stuff sure. cannot happen. Like who knows, maybe, maybe, uh, Maybe a giant comet missed us and hit Mars and just that tipped the scales to make life no longer viable. We don't know. Yeah. Well, so let's get into some of these uh, some of these details here of kind of how the how the Earth regulates itself. Um, so one of the one of the past topics we've talked about, did we have a whole episode on the um uh, what's it called? The the dim is it called the dim Earth paradox or did the dim Sun paradox? Faint, yeah, young, faint, young, faint sun. young Sun, the faint Young Sun paradox, right? We've definitely uh, talked about it. I don't think we did a whole episode on it, but yeah, um, we I, I know I know we talked about it several times, but um, so basically, uh, the Sun is getting hotter throughout its life cycle. So if you look at the early Earth, uh, the Sun was like twenty five to thirty percent dimmer uh than it is today but we don't see evidence of like so oh let me phrase it like this if it's dimmer you would think that the temperatures on earth would be colder right nope and this is this is where that paradox here comes in uh because uh the earth is looking like it was it was retaining heat it was it was actually hotter much in, much hotter yeah. yeah it was hotter back in the the early um the early earth. So, um, you know, this is, uh, and it gets into kind of, we look at, uh, in, in the, uh, uh, with greenhouse gases in terms of, um, 
like what carbon dioxide in the atmosphere um it's playing that's playing a a, a critical role in this um and these other uh these other greenhouse gases um basically the i guess the point being that the earth has this ability to regulate its temperature and so even when even when the the sun was was dimmer it was still it was still uh, it was still hot on earth um, and so it looks at these, uh, I, I guess you could say, uh, well, let me, let's go to this. So in the beginning of the earth, we know that there's a lot of carbon dioxide. And then all of a sudden, about 2 billion years ago, we get this, this, this shock of, of oxygen in the earth. And, um, and honestly, since, since then we've been kind of playing this, uh, the seesaw game between, between oxygen and carbon dioxide, when, when carbon, when oxygen spikes up, carbon dioxide goes down and, uh, and, and vice versa there. Well, where, where does the oxygen come from? The oxygen is a biosignature of life. The oxygen is, is a waste product of, um, of respiration from, uh, from plants and, and uh, uh, from organisms that perform photosynthesis. Um, so, and then uh, I will kind of get into the, that's actually kind of one of the, uh, one of the other things about in terms of uh, oxygen in the atmosphere, but um, you know, it, it, this, this kind of this tipping point or this, uh, this dance that like carbon dioxide and oxygen play, it, it does kind of, um, uh, Kind of, kind of like sets these limits of temperatures that we that we do see on Earth. The atmospheric mambo. It is. It's it's, it's a Ooh, it's a. I like that. A, it is. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it, it's, and I feel like that's what makes some people uneasy, is that this idea that, <clears throat> like, there is this, just innate ability to balance itself out. Mm-hmm. It's almost eerie how well the earth balances itself out. Yeah. That's the thing. Like when you, if you, I think if you graphed up earth's temperature, like the average temperature on earth over the past, let's say 2 billion years since the rise of oxygen, you know, that's a book title, the rise of oxygen. Yeah. Ultimately, like, You'd, you'd be somewhere between 10 and 30 degrees. Like you're, you're not going to wildly vary. What's the average temperature on earth now? 16. This is all in Celsius. Sorry. Um, yeah. I was going to so, say, this all sounds really cold, but it, it is. It's, it's kind of crazy. I mean, you think about, and this is, you know, I, I sort of, when I talk, you know, about the, the, the Pleistocene glaciations of the ice ages, the most recent ice ages. And I'm, I always, this is a, a good one to get your students. I was like, how much colder was it to create, you know, four mile, five mile thick sheets of ice? Uh, you know, people are always like, very cold. And I'm like, oh, you know, the average temperature on earth was only, you know, maybe, maybe five to eight degrees cold. It's, it's not much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of, it is pretty wild how well it regulates itself. It's a, yeah. it's a regular yeah. Warren G hit. Yeah. Regulators <laughs> mount up. 
I should have saved that to the end. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm giving them away for free. Spoiler yeah. alert. Spoiler alert. Um, so one of the things uh, James Lovelock kind of hypothesizes is, you know, okay, so why, if the sun was so dim in the beginning of the, in the beginning of Earth's history, why was it like, like significantly hot? It looks like a, between uh, about 10 degrees, 14 degrees or so Celsius hotter than the average temperature is today. You know, what, what, um, what could have been occurring and it's hypothesized that there are these uh, methanogens, right. Or these organisms, these microorganisms that release methane as a, as a, um, as a byproduct. And so methane is a, is a greenhouse gas and it's a very, very, very potent greenhouse gas. Um, you know, one of the things that 20, I, 21, 20 times stronger than CO2. Yeah. But it, it's, it's, it's very strong, very strong, but it's resonance time is, is shorter. So like CO2 stays up in the atmosphere for like a hundred years. Methane stays yeah, up in the atmosphere for like 10, but uh, CO2 is more than a hundred years. CO2 is like, like a hundred, like hundreds of thousands of years. Whatever. Uh, I think it's, it's right? like 10,000. 10,000 it's a okay somewhere between 100,000 and 100 <laughs> it varies well the thing it, it varies a lot it's not it's it does. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah i think you can yeah i think the average so yeah mm-hmm. um so um anyways uh and the, the other thing is uh that um lovelock kind of hypothesizes that if you had this much this much uh methane in the atmosphere it could screen out ultraviolet light kind of this is because before we had an ozone layer. So this much methane in the atmosphere could have, could have been like a, like a temporary ozone layer before, before the ozone layer shows up. All right. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of, um, you know, if, if you look at the, the temperature history on the earth, it does, it doesn't go crazy. We don't get this like runaway effect that like Venus has, right. Venus had this runaway greenhouse effect and, the surface of Venus is hot enough to, to melt lead. It's a little roasty toasty there. So um, the earth never, never went through this. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> it's hot enough as it is. I, I wouldn't want. How hot is it? It's pretty hot. All right. So in terms of temperature regulation, uh, you know, the, the earth does, does that. Um, Another interesting one that's mentioned is regulation of oceanic salinity. All right. So you would think that the ocean should be getting saltier and saltier over time. So where, okay. So the, the great question was for a while is where's all the salt in the oceans coming from? All right. And it was, it was, it was thought that, oh, it's coming in from dissolved salt from rivers. Rivers ultimately flow into the ocean and that's gotta be it. But uh, that doesn't really account for for it, and it um, turns out that the salinity of the oceans is, is strongly influenced from seawater circulating through hot basaltic rock, like basically baby rock, uh, and also um, things like uh, black smokers uh, or these vents along uh, mid-ocean ridges. That's also putting a, a ton of that's putting in uh, salt as well into the uh, into the ocean, into the oceans, but the salinity has been, it's been going, it's, it doesn't go above 5%. 
right? Kind of hangs around between three and a half and five percent salinity. Again, one it, of those things, but it's just you should be getting always, the ocean should be getting more and more saltier. It should, but it's just always stays right there in that balance. Just stays there, just just hanging out there. So, uh, so what's going? So there's all these things about the the chemistry of, of this. Uh, I'm not going to get into uh, chemistry, but um, here's an, another. Uh, these are once again. This is all just kind of interesting thought experiments, right? And that's well. I don't want to go too too much off top or on a tangent here, but one of the reasons that the Gaia hypothesis is so heavily criticized was that you can't prove it, or it's I maybe mean, you can't prove it. it's extremely, extremely difficult to prove it. Right. It's not, it's not just this like thing. That's like, all right, you just, you, you make some observations. It's pretty cut and dry thing. It's, it's not, it's not exactly one of those things that, that you, that you can, you can prove. So you what, can't uh, prove in a human time scale, <laughs> like, you know, it's going to take hundreds of thousands of years to prove or disprove this, or I, I don't know, or maybe infinity. You know, if it is true, will this planet go on forever? Well, it won't because the sun's going to eat it up. Right. But when the sun eats it up, will will the earth have figured out some sort of defense mechanism to balance that? Well, let's, let's hold that. Okay. Let's hold that till the end of the podcast. All right. right. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to that. Right. I got I want to talk about that because, um, but all right, so there's a geologist by the name of Kenneth Sue, right? Um, Kenneth Sue is in the 1970s was involved with uh, doing some coring work in the Mediterranean Sea, looking at the the formation of the of the Mediterranean Sea, right? And uh, you know what's kind of what's go, what's what's the geologic history of the Mediterranean Sea, right? Well, it turns out that about five million years ago, the Mediterranean Sea um, or the Strait of Gibraltar closed up. Oh my gosh! I would love. I want to. We should do a show on this incident. We're we talking should. about this, the Messinian. Yes. Yeah. 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 We should. Okay. All right. Put a pin in that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. Uh, Sue, Do you know the name of the ship that he was on? No. The Glomar Challenger. Oh. Classic. Classic, classic drilling vessel out there. Um, probably the dorkiest thing that we said today. Um, <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right. Can this Sue, one of the things that he discovered, his Tim and his research team, I don't think he's just by himself. Can't, so it's hard to core in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea by yourself. Yeah. Uh, he had some helpers. Uh, <laughs> Uh, they they found these these giant salt deposits, these really really vast salt deposits, and it was from when the Me- five million years ago, when the Mediterranean Sea dried up, the the Strait of Gibraltar closed up, and uh, the water just ev- evaporated out. See you later. Um, and it caused it caused all these um, it caused a lot of salt deposits, right? And which it's kind of weird because you you drill down through the Mediterranean Sea. And you're not expecting to find salt deposits at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. If you find salt deposits, that means it's an arid environment, right? Well, the, the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea is not an arid environment, right? It's saturated. It's the opposite of an arid environment. So that's why it's weird, right? There's a couple other things that are going on there um, to, 
to kind of point that the Mediterranean Sea nearly dried up about 5 million years ago. But Kenneth Sue, okay, so that's, that's one thing that he, he, he's accredited for is coming up with this, uh, uh, finding the geologic evidence that the Mediterranean Sea uh, kind of dried up for a bit. And then basically the Strait of Gibraltar opened up again and phew, flooded the whole thing out in two years. Imagine being out there two years for the Mediterranean Sea to fill up. Yeah, the, it's a, there's some thought that it was just like a giant waterfall <clears throat> moving 100 million cubic meters per second of discharge. I don't even know what 100 million cubic I don't know meters either. per second is. Yeah. Like, what, is, is that, that, what is that in African elephants? Yeah, Zan- save that off Zan- the lab. Zan- yeah, Zan- save it for next week. Save it for next week. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. You want to find out how many African elephants per second? Actually, I'm, I, we, I am going to ca- calculate that. We'll have that all, all queued up. For, we got our topic for next week. All right. Yep. And we, um, we will put that on our perfectly formatted document yeah. for next week. Yeah. So the so earth kind of keeps that. itself in line. How do you keep word documents in line, Steve? Ooh, well, the best, the best way to do it is to go to formattingformula.com or YouTube forward slash C forward slash formatting formula for all of your word document formatting needs. Anything from uh, little itty bitty things like numbering figures and tables and whatnot, uh, all the way up to complex things like changing the toolbars at the the header of your Word document, or you know, not the header, the the top of your Word toolbar. toolbar? They can actually yeah, customize cool. that. Um, so check them out, uh, formattingformula.com. Or if you want to teach yourself, they have all these wonderful, well paced um, instructional videos on YouTube on how to do it yourself. So. Uh, I'm the lazy person who likes to just have them do it for me. But if you're ambitious, God bless you. And uh, yeah, check them out on YouTube. But make sure you leave a comment or or tell them that uh, Geology Final Cast sent you. So thanks, Formatting Formula. Great. Very, uh, very well regulated, Steve. Thank you. Very <laughs> much, very much like Earth systems, well regulated. Yeah. Um, all right, so we're going to talk about the salt, the Mediterranean Sea. Why am I going off on this tangent? Well, I'm coming back around, all right? Kenneth Sue uh, threw this, out, this idea out in 2001, suggesting that uh, the Mediterranean Sea is Gaia's kidney, all right? What? Ooh. Have I gone off the deep end? What is going on here? Yeah. Kind of saying, like, we have these, like, enormous salt deposits and that's the earth's way of regulating it's a tectonic it's a tectonic system but tectonically that's how one of the ways the earth regulates the salt in the oceans we get these enormous salt deposits like we see at the the bottom of the of the mediterranean sea um it's tectonic it's not biology it's tectonic um, so like we talked about the last thing we talked about was like the, the temperatures, uh, the regulation of the temperatures on earth could be linked to biology. All right. This, this is, this one though is not linked. It's just kind of tectonic, but we see these enormous salt deposits. It's not just in, in uh, it's not like a one-time thing, like, uh, that, you know, the med- we see the salt deposits at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. No, we see these enormous salt deposits from all over the place during the Cretaceous, uh, in this, the South Atlantic, uh, we see salt deposits. Uh, so, guys, kidneys move. There's multiple. There's. It's not. The, oh. I guess it moves. There's. It just deposits salt. You think of kidney filters out toxins yeah. out of your blood, right? 
Well, yeah, that, these salt your, deposits are just that in your liver. Yeah, well, they both they, they, no, but they I, both I understand. Have yeah, things they filter oh. out. And That's interesting. Uh, so we see these uh, in the Cretaceous in the South Atlantic. You know that, that the the South Atlantic opened up after the North Atlantic, uh, but we see salt deposits associated with that. Uh, Jurassic Age salt deposits in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, uh, see Permian Triassic in Europe, Devonian stuff in Canada, Cambrian Precambrian stuff from Gondwana. Uh, all these huge uh, salt deposits, kind of saying it's almost. Uh, let's see in the document Kenneth Sue wrote, he did say it was cyclical or suggested some kind of cyclicity. Uh, every hundred million, every hundred million years, you see. Uh, these periodic removals of salt ions and heavy and heavy metals from the ocean. So this is an interesting one. Uh, yeah. And you get into, you get into some dicey territory when you start trying to like make things cyclical. I feel like yeah. Milankovitch nailed it. Yeah. Every, everything wants to be cyclical. Well, yeah. I mean, Wilson cycles, you don't think so? I think yeah. it's tied to it's maybe it's tied to Wilson cycle. That's a good point. That's a good point. Now, because you know it's what? it's I'm every back on board. Back every on board. Ha- half a Wilson cycle or something. There's a every half a Wilson cycle. Part of me, so uh, is a chance. I don't know because this isn't like biologically. You could you could make the argument that evolution will kind of like shift around and and do things to keep something, you know in the status quo, some kind of system within the status quo for earth tectonically is kind of a, it's a mind of its own. They're not, there's not even a mind. Is there, it's all, you know, tied to mantle convection currents. So, oh, yeah, I mean, but it's physics. Yeah. Physics. I mean, you have so much heat mm-hmm. in the, in the system and things are going to keep moving based on the energy that's already in the system. Yeah, things are going to keep moving. Yeah. Uh, and we're, we're, we're not dissipating a ton of heat out into cold space in the grand scheme of things. Obviously, we are a little bit, but we're also trapping some heat from outside of our quote-unquote system, which is the sun, like the sun's energy. We're, we're trapping some of that. So we're really losing net losing energy in our whole tectonic system at a very, very slow rate. Uh uh So the earth is cooling off obviously, but the energy is still there. So if that energy is still there to open and close our oceans, you know, have these Wilson cycles, then why not, you know, mama's got a squeeze box and you're just going to keep squeezing and pushing those, continents back together and separating them apart and then when you do that you're getting salt deposits yeah is it just it's an, i gotta think about that one i have no opinion right now <laughs> <laughs> i gotta i gotta i gotta think about that one sorry i'm i'm, I'm already on you know tripadvisor.com figuring out my next guy hypothesis conference so oh you're gonna, okay you're gonna yeah, I'm, fifth I'm one. in i'm going Okay. Okay. Sweet. Am I planning? So, all right. The next one uh, is regulation of oxygen in the atmosphere. 
So I kind of started getting into this and, and actually we've done a whole, a whole episode about this in terms of snowball earth. Uh, this went really heavy into uh, regulation of oxygen in the atmosphere, but all right. So rephrase what I said about a couple of minutes ago, you get this oxygen is a, is a biomarker. Okay. That's one of the things that you can look for. Uh, oxygen doesn't like to hang out alone. Snowball earth, by the way, was episode 92, April of 2021. Oh, the best episode statistician. <laughs> yeah. It's, you're just, <clears throat> you're so quick on that. Control F baby. Type in snowball. There. That's why we have them. Formatting for me. They taught me that. That's why we have them in the payroll at the flannel cast here. <laughs> he could go for like a, like a baseball team, like, you know, cranking all those stats out, but no, he chooses to, uh, <laughs> yeah. Geology. That's where it's at. Out. Hang out here at the geology final cast. All right. So oxygen is a biomarker. Oxygen is a waste product of life. Oxygen, free oxygen just doesn't just hang around. And in fact, if all life died on earth today, we would lose free oxygen in the atmosphere because the oxygen wants to react with other stuff. Oxygen is very reactive. It wants to react with other stuff. It doesn't like just hanging around That's in the atmosphere. Point. Yeah. You, so, I, when we talked about biomarkers and stuff, do we mention oxygen? It's the most obvious one. I don't, I don't know, know if we, we did. did. <laughs> for, for in terms of what? Whoops. Huh? In terms of biomarkers for, for when we talked episode? a couple episodes ago when we were talking about like biomarkers of life. Oh, the, like with the Silurian hypothesis? Maybe it was yeah. that one. Or even it wouldn't last hundreds Venus. of millions of years though. Yeah, and a couple episodes That's before cool. that, one thirty-seven, we talked about plate tectonics being the key to life. Yeah, we didn't guy. really talk about oxygen. Well, anyway, oxygen is pretty important for complex life, but if you were like pre-complex life, oh, you're in for a bad day. So you start getting this uh, blue-green algae, or uh, so basically the cyanobacteria starts kicking out oxygen as a waste product. But uh, the other stuff that was on Earth at the time died when it came in contact with oxygen oxygen yeah very caustic all right it, i mean it had evolved to live in an oxygen-free environment yeah 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 exactly yeah exactly exactly and, i mean that's like the old there's like an old joke about like you know the process of of, of burning a fire is is an oxidizing process you need oxygen and and Ox, oxidize like oxygen things oxidizing that's how you it kills your cells over time mm-hmm. that's why you so, they always say like take antioxidants or blueberries or yeah. antioxidants and so the the old sort of joke is that like you know as you get older you know your cells die you're basically slowly burning to death <laughs> oh that's, that's terrible <laughs> yeah um huh. But as you're, you're right. It's like oxygen is very, you know, ox, it's very caustic, especially to those things that evolved to be like, yeah, everything's great. And oxia, mm-hmm. that's where it's at. And then all yeah. of a sudden, uh, bad news. <clears throat> so we get this stuff that starts kicking off oxygen as a waste product. And then, uh, so that's not good. And, and then what ends up happening is we start, so this is about 2 billion years ago. And 
you start dumping dumping oxygen into the atmosphere, then uh, we've done podcasts on this, so I don't want to I don't want to harp on it too much. But all all hell breaks loose, right? It's uh, uh what is it? It's called the oxygen category. The oxygen revolution. The oxygen revolution. But there's oh, I just read there's another, someone's called it uh, the oxygen catastrophe. Or oh um, yeah, that that sounds about right. I think I feel like yeah. I'm blanking on exactly how it was phrased, but uh, yeah. So if you uh, you can't if, if you get in contact with uh, this like this simple life, this you know uh, microscope these microbes, uh, it killed them. See you later. Goodbye. Uh, game set and match. It wasn't finally until life evolved, life had to figure out a way to be like, hey, we either we if you can't beat them, join them, right? And so that's where like cells uh, was it developed uh, like uh, mitochondria to use oxygen and oxygen was uh, it, it, it was, it's, it's, you can't have complex, complex animal life without oxygen. It's now it's, it's, it's necessary. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what Darwin, that's how he described evolution. You can't beat them, join them. That's <laughs> or you, yeah. or you die. Yeah. Or you die. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And since I'm on a roll, this, we, you can go with that. We yeah. talked, we talked about that in our Biff's episode, episode 93, back in May of 2021. Oh. Yeah. We went heavy in oxygen for, uh, for that one. So, all right. So we start doing that. So to go back to this oxygen versus CO2 thing, we got the seesaw effect. And so what happens is these, uh, these microbes are taken in. CO2 and they're spitting out oxygen. Well, what they're doing is they're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. This is this is part of the carbon cycle. Biology affects the carbon cycle, pulling it out. And it's it's not just microbes, now plants do it as well. Um, and so that starts. So then we we know carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. The more carbon dioxide you have, the hotter things are. Um, but when the carbon dioxide levels drop, you're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, and now you just get this O2 now just hanging out by itself. One of the things I learned when I was researching this podcast or reading about the stuff for this podcast, use that term research very loosely. But <laughs> if you look at the green, all of the greenhouse gases, they're all the molecules are all three atoms or more: carbon dioxide, CO2. Uh, what's another greenhouse gas? Uh, H2O. Three, three, three atoms, methane, Ozone. CH4, that's five, five atoms, but they're all heavy. And so these heavier, you need these heavier molecules to, uh, they, it, it traps, it basically traps that infrared in the atmosphere. If you look at three, three atom molecules, like C, or I'm sorry, O2, it's not a greenhouse gas. They're all, they're all at least three, uh, three atoms or larger. I didn't realize that until several days ago. Actually, by several days, I mean yesterday. <laughs> I had Jesse give me this look like, hmm. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, look, I'll just say I'm not buying it, but that's interesting. I'm, I'm actually trying to think of, aside from O2, I'm like, what is an atmospheric gas? Nitrogen, N2. Oh, there you go. You showed me. The most, uh, but nitrogen's super inert, just doing nothing. But nitrous yeah. oxide, but that's again that's three. that's greenhouse. Yeah. Oh, nitrogen. Yeah. That's three. Huh. 
Well, look Think at you. It. I mean, yeah, ozone is three. Blocks UV radiation. It also sort of, yeah. All right, I'm on board. Yeah. Methane is <laughs> CH4, which is five. Yeah. All the CFC, well, the man-made, human-made CFCs are like Chlorofluorocarbons. Yeah. yeah. Think about it. Anyways, we'll come back to it. Uh, yeah. But all right. So let's see. Uh, well, you get so then oxygen starts getting too cocky. All right. By cocky, like too yes. abundant. I don't know. I'm personifying oxygen. Like, <laughs> hey, this is great. I got this whole planet to myself. All right. Hey, what are you going to do about it? Huh? Yeah. Hey, what's going to happen here? So oxygen does this cute thing. And Steve would know this. Now. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but 23% is when it starts to bust yeah come bust uh <laughs> is it yeah is it 23 i thought it was a little higher is it higher than 23 what is it uh, tw- 23 is when epa like the the health and safety say like all right you're now in an oxygen rich environment where okay. things will combust a lot lot easier yeah okay that, yeah. yeah and anything less than 19 percent, you're you're gonna start getting loopy and and or dying and that that's sort of the crazy thing like the range yeah. for us tiny window yeah we're, we're at 20.9 19 to 20 right now yeah yeah and we're about 20 21 right now so yeah, think of crazy. think about it we yeah. we can't go really less than 19 percent. i mean you could live but it would suck you'd have headaches and you, you couldn't you know do a lot of stuff and then anything over 23 percent, you you're fine but you might burn to death <laughs> Only if there's a spark. Yeah, but <laughs> just stay away from lightning, right? Mm-hmm. So I uh, see. Uh, okay, so then oxygen starts getting a little too big for its britches, and it starts. You start getting really getting a lot of oxygen over time as these uh, photosynthetic organisms are pulling out the carbon out of the atmosphere. All right, and then it gets to a point where oxygen. Um, you get up towards like the high twenties and then like lightning strikes will make it combust. And you start getting into this like dangerous world where there's like, uh, you know, do fires you know, and it starts getting crazy. Do you know what period that was? Uh, does it start with the word carbon? It does. The carbon yeah. and with Iphorus. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the home of all of the Pennsylvania coals. Exactly. So what happened? And why there's a lot of coal, so you had lots of plants, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and who had 47 minutes before Jesse said coal? <laughs> well the the, the oxygen yeah, the oxygen rich environment. It so Pennsylvania at the time was in the southern hemisphere in the tropics. And so it was a swampy environment, super productive in terms of vegetation, but the atmosphere is so oxygen rich. You have these swamps, these sort of ever wet environments where you could still have wildfires because the, 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 the wet environments, the, there was so much oxygen that, that even like these soggy swamps could, could burn. They didn't have to necessarily dry out. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I never thought about it like that, but yeah. So, all right, so plant life gets abundant, but you can only put so much oxygen into the atmosphere before 
basically the earth starts burning itself down. And so when you hear something else I, uh, um, that I learned this week, when you're burning fire, when you're burning wood, that's the opposite of photosynthesis. All right. Sure is. So you're taking all that energy from the sun, basically number one, and then that carbon that was stored. So the, the, you know, I'm not getting into the, the chemistry behind photosynthesis and, and making sugars and whatever, but, uh, uh, no, please do. No, I don't want to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what, what you're looking at is when you have a log and you throw a log onto the, onto a fire, you're just taking that carbon, you're burning it. And that carbon was, that was, that's, that was pulled out from carbon dioxide and stored from a tree, a, a tree. So it's natural carbon sequestration. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, the, it's, so when the, when the tree is alive, it's locking up carbon, turning it into, 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 you know, uh, sugar, or carbohydrates, C6H12O6. Oh, look at you. Look at you. Pulling oh, that I got it. it. Yeah, man. <laughs> and then I'm impressed. It, and then when it dies bacteria, so it, it uses CO2, produces the, the organic carbon, and the byproduct is free oxygen O2. And then when that plant dies, bacteria uses oxygen and breaks down that plant, and one of the byproducts is CO2. It's taking the carbon, and it's mixing with the oxygen, produces CO2. So when you're burning that wood, you're doing the same thing as bacteria. You're doing the decomposition process. It's oxidizing. Fire is oxidation. You, yeah. yeah. It's burning, slowly burning. So you're out. adding, yeah. you're, you got that carbon there and you're adding oxygen and poof, kicking out carbon dioxide. Yeah. Part of that fire tetrahedron. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's, that's the reason we have climate change today <clears throat> is we, we've taken all this fossil fuel that it was plant material that was tens of millions of years to form. And we're, we're doing that decomposition process, but we're just doing it in, you know, a hundred years. Yeah. Know? So mm-hmm. it's just a rate imbalance. Yeah. It's, so. it's Gaia just sort of on steroids, right? We're, yeah. we're out of balance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hold that. Put a pin in that thought. Ah, right? geez, please. We got like <laughs> we 12 list, pins now. We have a list pins. of all these pins right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So we're kind of a little long-winded here at this regulation box, but I think it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, I don't care it's long-winded, all right? I like talking about this. Yeah. That, it's you not know a what? podcast. We'll talk about whatever we want. <laughs> Going into it, I was like, all right, like I knew Guy, and we talked about how I had a class in Guy or whatever, and I was like, yeah, all right, yeah, sure. But now you, you start talking about it, you're like, no, this is actually very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we touched the topics that nobody else dares to touch. Gosh. That's what it comes down to. Okay. So plants really like a CO2 rich environment. All right. But then it, and then it can only get to be so much. They, they, they kick out so much oxygen that things start catching fire and it gets pretty crazy. So the, the plants can help pull out that carbon out of the atmosphere, get rid of that carbon dioxide, put oxygen there. But then it gets to a certain point where you have too much oxygen and now things just start exploding. All right. And that's, that's not good for, for business either. Um, and it looks like uh, that fire global f- or these, these, these large fires uh, when oxygen gets, gets 
too high is actually enough to kick the O2 levels back down to regulate that that uh, that oxygen level in the atmosphere. So it's this dance. Basically, what it comes down to is this dance, this mambo. As did you say, mambo <laughs> earlier, Steve? Yeah, the atmospheric mambo. <laughs> yeah. Atmospheric mambo of plants growing and fires take plants growing and pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and fires burning and taking that carbon and putting it back into the atmosphere plant growth and fire and supposedly that's that's it that's what uh um that's that's regulating the oct that's one there's it's actually much more complex than that because then you also have like oceans uh absorbing carbon dioxide pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and plant and, and like uh, marine organisms making shells out of uh, using using that carbon to make shells out of um, you know turning it into calcite basically I was gonna Ragonite, say if you want to be technical Ragonite, yeah plant, plant growth and fire that's a that's a different podcast <laughs> plant growth and fire it's it's this podcast yeah well no, that's not what I was getting at. But anyway, has to do with Bigfoot. Oh, I see what you're. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> what about burning trees? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's boy, it's really something else. It, it really is pretty amazing. About well, you know, the more you dig into it, and guess what? Chris isn't even done yet. No, done. No, we, we haven't even some- gotten to our twelve pins yet. I know. I I can't wait to talk about well, the Pleistocene glaciation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, oh, okay. Well, let, let me just go. I, I, let me try let's to get put a pin in that the, one. The Coccolithophores. Let's talk about the Coccolithophores real fast. All right. Coccolithophores. You guys like chalk? We're going to talk yeah. about chalk for a little bit, right? That's that's driveway right. full of it. It used to be great when I was teaching. Our, the one building we, we taught at had still had chalkboards before everything became whiteboards. And it made teaching about coccolithophores so much easier because I'd be like, I'm just writing on this board with bones. This is, this is now... Skeletons this, of... Yeah, you see these words? Ass brethren. These are corpses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just grinding bones to, to write these words. So... Um, I actually did the same exact thing in my class too. So, not, not, <laughs> not to put a tangent, but why did we switch to whiteboards? Oh, um, chalk's a pain in the ass. I hate chalk. Oh, really? I, I don't know. Ch- I kind of, I kind of like chalk. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. At one point, when whiteboards were first catching on, they had these awesome whiteboard markers that were selectively erasive whiteboard so like you had like a red a green a black and a blue and then you could actually like have a spray that only erased the blue what all the rest would stay what kind of black magic witchcraft is that (laughs) but it it didn't catch on because obviously it's a very complicated process and i'm not sure how many people really need that kind of that's up there with like the invention of like the scratch and sniff sticker right there but anyway I digress. Do they still have the scratch and sniff stickers. Is oh, I'm sure. Thing? Yes, absolutely. Amazing, Amazing human ingenuity. How do yeah. they make it so when you scratch it, it smells? Yeah, we'll we'll never that. know, Chris. Put a pin in that. We'll come back. Yeah. 
<laughs> all right, all right. All right, let's talk about uh, coccolithophores here. Uh, all part of the carbon cycle. So we're talking about trees and fire, and, and they're all keeping each other in line, making sure the oxygen level is just right. You got If all the trees die, all the oxygen eventually goes away. Um, so moving on, uh, you know, we, we can talk about, you know, one of the ways you can get carbon dioxide, uh, getting back into the atmosphere is from volcanic activities. So you have like subduction zones and limestones and stuff like that. I'm going to, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, that is one way, you know, for the continuation of the, of the carbon cycle there. But, um, I want to talk about, uh, basically, uh, chalk these these coccolithophores these little little microbe critters uh that live in the ocean and so what happens is uh as as co2 increases it's really good for the coccolithophores uh because they they have that's that's a source they don't want it to be too much because they are made of calcite and if their oceans acidify then that's you know kind of game set match there but um what it does is it'll uh the, the the chalk will it's it's another way to pull out carbon out of the uh, out of the atmosphere. So you have this uh, the the carbon in the ocean. They make their shells out of that, and then they die, and then they just kind of fall down. They sprinkle down to the bottom of the ocean floor, and it's locked up in there. It's it's locked up at the uh, the bottom of the ocean floor, um, and that'll eventually form chalk or you know limestones, um, and uh, so one of the things, though, we do see with, uh, and it is, it's kind of hypo. It's the this idea has been floated out now is that recent times with increasing CO two in the atmosphere, what are we seeing? We're seeing uh, more algal blooms, and where are the algal blooms? They're the, just like with the coccolithophore algae. Uh, they just they they're going to pull out that. Uh, they're going to increase. You get these algal blooms. It's a big problem along basically on all of the oceans, to tell you the truth, um, it's going to be another mechanism to pull out the CO2. So, you know, we see as humans are putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, we're going through this whole conundrum now, Mother Nature's trying to scramble. Not, you know, once again, I'm personifying, I shouldn't say Mother Nature, I said Mother Gaia, really, right? That's the whole topic of uh, today. Yeah. yeah, come on. Excuse yeah, me. A little respect, please. Excuse me, excuse me. Um, but you do start to see these like these checks and balances kind of coming in there. It's uh, kind of scrambling. Um, uh, so anyway, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. We're getting a little, little long winded other things. Uh, uh, you, you can talk about uh, carbon sequestration in terms of lichen and, and weathering, weathering the surface. Okay. I'm not gonna get to that. All right. Done with that. I just, uh, we'll skip over that. Um, all right. So, Jesse, what did you want to talk about? Well, I mean, it, it really does come back down to feedback loops, which we don't <clears throat> talk about. Too, too, I feel like we should talk about them more just in, in the science in general. But I, I just love looking. You see the, the classic graphs of the Pleistocene glaciation. Yeah. And you can look at you know, the Pleistocene glaciation, as far as we know, was mainly controlled by Milankovitch cycles. So and it was mainly... Allegedly. No, I'm joking. Allegedly, <laughs> yeah. So it was... was Initially, it was... Um, initially, it was 
procession and then it was um, the eccentricity. There was one main beat that you could sort of see in terms of the timing lines up. But as we go into these glacial cycles, CO2 drops, and then as we come out, CO2 rises, and then there is just this regulation. It's sort of crazy. Yeah. Like you, you look at the graphs of it, and it all just lines up. Yeah, and really, uh, really lovely. James Lovelock and Andrew Watson developed a mathematical model. They called that Daisy World. Oh yeah. Uh, it's just like yeah. a, it's like a free program where you can mess with different variables and see how things kind of self-regulate themselves. So the one thing I will say, Daisy World is heavily criticized. Um, <laughs> there's there's a, there's a lot of controversy over Daisy World. Well, I mean, uh, it's a simplified energy budget it, it, simulation. Yeah, yeah. Like it's just mathematics. Of, uh, on a basic scale of you put in this, you get out that. So, let's see when it got to when temperatures. Okay. So you had black colored daisies and white colored daisies that, that covered the earth. And when things got to the white colored daisies liked hotter temperatures and the black colored daisies liked colder temperatures. And so when it all, it's all linked to the albedo effect, right? Uh, light colored stuff reflects light. the sunlight, basically, you know, energy from the sun. Um, and then, uh, so let's see. So as temperatures got warmer, the white colored daisies were happy and they flourished and they had more of an albedo effect and reflected more light back from the sun. Um, things got to a certain point and then it started, there's too much albedo and then it started getting colder. And then the, the black colored daisies liked it as it got colder. Cause, uh, but since they were black, they absorbed uh, radiation. And it was kind of like this way of kind of like, it's, it's, it's yeah, it just it's kept balancing itself out. Yeah. Checks, mother, basically biological checks and balances. Yeah. Yeah. But very, very simplified. Yes. Yes. Of yeah. course, it's going to be criticized, but um, it's just an interesting way to think about it, though. Yeah. And al- albedo, you know, it, it is a real thing. Albedo, how much light is reflected or absorbed. And that is becoming a more apparent thing, too, now with climate change. Like, you, you melt more snow. Snow is a good reflector. Now, anything that's not snow, even if it is light-colored or whatever, it's not as good of a reflector as snow was. Mm-hmm. So. So. The question, so Jesse brought up, uh, you know, all throughout the Pleistocene, uh, you can really see these, the temperatures jumping up and down from the ice ages, like very, very, very uh, cyclical, right? And then, and then you see, uh, and then temperatures are, if you look at the temperatures of earth all throughout the entire like Paleozoic era, um, things were a lot hotter or uh, well, it dipped. There's, there was, there's fluctuation, you know, we had glacial uh, glacial periods, but the, the highs were, uh, it looked like, uh, like during the Cambrian period, 
temperatures on average were like 14 degrees Celsius hotter than they are today. That's a lot. That's, that's significantly warmer. And then you go through, you know, all throughout the, the Paleozoic and then the, the Mesozoic eras and, and, uh, and during the Mesozoic, it looks like, you know, things were hot during the Triassic, about almost 12 degrees hotter than they are today. And then, but they kind of fluctuated to between 12 and two degrees hotter than they are today. And then things got really hot again during the, uh, uh, the, the PETM, the paleo Eocene thermal max, right. Jumped up to about another, about 14, close to this, you know, close to 14 degrees hotter than they are today. And ever since the paleo Eocene thermal max tempers, temperatures have been dropping. Right. So if you fast forward to the Pleistocene, temperature global, the average, it, it, it jumps around, but the average, like uh, the coldest it got, temperatures were about four degrees Celsius colder than they are today. The during the interglacials during the Pleistocene, temperatures were two degrees warmer than they are today. Right. So my question is you look at the last 10,000 years, right? Um, well, eighteen thousand years. So we come out the 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 last the, the last glacial max hit at like eighteen thousand years, and and temperatures are the are the you know the way they are today. And then all of a sudden, like you know, the industrial revolution hits, and boom, we get this spike, this anthropogenic spike. Do humans? Here's the here's the philosophical question I have for you, gentlemen. Is this all part of Gaia's plan? Oof. Ooh. <laughs> Again, not that guy is a sentient being, but yes, not. But is this a way of the Earth balancing balancing itself out? Yes. So, before you answer this, I will say, yeah, <laughs> Homo sapiens have never experienced temperatures that we have, that we're experiencing right now, right? The, the, the species Homo sapiens been around for say 200,000 years, right? Are you just saying that because you live in Atlanta? It's very hot. <laughs> uh, no, it's actually, it's, um, but, you know, so as things get hotter with climate change, you know, hundred years from now, Homo sapiens have never experienced this, like this average heat before. No. Just FYI, but do homo sapiens count for the biological, these biological regulations? I would say yes. It's interesting. I would, I don't know if I have an, yes. I mean, uh, you know, not. You, you could have like a natural coal seam fire that yeah. adds a ton of CO2 to the atmosphere all by itself. You could have, I feel like, like what, the what, Siberian traps add a crap ton of carbon dioxide right. into the atmosphere, you know, and kill ninety percent of life. But I feel like what we're doing is having an effect. Well, no, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so why why would we not count? I'm not. I'm not saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know. So what we see is a rapid change regardless of what's going on with, in terms of climate change that we're seeing today, it is biologically induced. Yeah. 
how I think the question is how long <clears throat> will it last and how quickly will earth balance itself back out? Yes. Yeah. Right. So I'm getting, yeah. Yeah. So if we, we go another this. 200 years, we end up basically killing ourselves off. Then or, we stop that process of CO2 into the atmosphere. And then it'll probably take another 200 years to regulate itself. I probably not even 200 years. So we kill ourselves off or maybe in the process force something else to adapt to regulate it. Oh, you thinking like a wayward pine situation where like a, a new species comes out and eats us all. I don't know about <laughs> eating us, but no. <laughs> no, but I mean like that's just how evolution works, you know? Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> if you haven't watched that wayward pines from 2018, sorry. I didn't watch. I don't know what you're talking about. What is it? Is that a show? Yeah, it was a good show on Fox. It was. uh, Oh, I never never even heard of it. Check it out. Okay. Ooh. It was worth it was worth a watch, but I kind of ruined it for you. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, I think what we're doing is, I mean, like, are are humans changing the atmosphere? I mean, absolutely. But are we setting the stage for something else to, to kind of like, I'm just kind of comparing it to like, you know, I, I know that the, the, the main thing is like the rate of change right now is just like, it's a, it's a crazy, crazy fast rate of change for boom, everything, you know, but could we be setting the stage for, you know, something else to thrive with these conditions? And I think the answer is absolutely something else is going to take over and thrive. Yeah, it, it could very well be. I mean, we've, we've adapted to like uh, eating dairy from other animals that's not normal so like we can drink milk Um, some people can't true i can't i get (laughs) uh we've adapted to like living at higher altitudes than we've ever you know really so humans have evolved a lot over the last i don't know ten thousand years already yeah so could could we rapidly evolve to handle I, I don't know. Like, I mean, you know, I think there's no no doubt that humans can rapidly, humans itself can can rapidly evolve to handle the temperatures. You just need really good air conditioning. No, no but that's I mean, not a, like that's if, not if adapting. Cold, we that's it not is biologically adapting. It is adapting. No, it is adapting because humans, you can you can you can we can make it right. If it gets too cold, what do you do? You put a puffy jacket on. Okay, cool. I'm good. Now, if it's a reptile and you put that reptile in like so in Alaska, I, I guess I'm just winter, saying me, me taking a lactate we have, before we have I, brain power that yes. we can we can fix these things. But me taking, a, me taking a lactate before I eat a bowl of ice cream is not evolution. I, 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 really? Really? It's it's not my biological Some, system evolving no, to handle the ice cream. It's, it's it's something that that somebody figured out. It's a problem that somebody. No, no, I, I, I get that, too. Like. And and I'll so you know, humans learning to use a hammer to use tools. That's not evolution. How is the brain learning things not evolution? It it is, uh, but I don't think taking a lactate is evolution. It is it is <laughs> no, adapt it is adapting, every, but I'm not every, evolving. I would argue every because you're adapting to your environment. Yes, every I'm, I'm, invention I'm, I'm, that a human makes is evolution guess i don't know it's just like you know i can drink a glass of water but 
you know, that's great. I hydrate, I stay alive, but if I drink a beer, then I'm relaxed. <laughs> like that's not evolution. You can thank that's fungus true. for that. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, you, you pass on that trait to your kids and they pass it on to their kids. And that's true. Awesome. And then we all become uh, alcoholics. <laughs> but <laughs> cheers. <laughs> um, and, and I, I would add the more depressing thing is, just because, hear we have, <laughs> just because we have the tools to to adapt doesn't mean we will right way to bring In us terms, down buddy sorry. sorry just because we have the tools to adapt doesn't mean that we will yeah yeah just because we can adapt to climate change like we have the tools to combat it yeah, and adapt we, to it like now every single house doesn't in mean America. we will do it Every single house in America, there's no reason why we can't have solar panels on every house. There isn't. I mean, you you could we could make that argument. However, there's just monetarily. Know. Yes. People, now you're making excuses. Yes. So no, mo- monetarily like too. Yes. I don't think like or solar with solar panels solve it because you still need. No, no, no. It the wouldn't it wouldn't solve it. the solar it, panels. No, it wouldn't solve it. Industry no. industry accounts for like, I don't know, 71% of all electricity like that. that's used. However, that 29% that's used in households could be totally eliminated. You could eliminate like a third of the energy costs right now. Yeah, yeah. I've always wondered about the, the, the ripple effects of that because you're still like, it's not solar panels aren't a free lunch no 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 i understand you still have to mine it you still have to produce it you still have to manufacture it they only have a a limited you know lifespan but there are i don't want this isn't a political podcast but there are there are powers that be that don't want this to happen because it's not like i i have solar panels on my house but due to legislation i'm only allowed to put so enough solar panels on my house that i can use in a year I could, oh, that's I could, I could put probably yeah. twice as much solar panels as I would use in a year. You could make your whole the, backyard hypothetical, even my it, size backyard. You could exactly. just have it be a, a, you know, a sun farm basically. So in, instead of me paying $200 a month, I could be making $600 a month by putting yeah. that much more energy back into the grid. But because of just the laws and stuff, I, I can't do that, you can which is, own. what have you made? Well, anyways, I don't think yeah, no, but, no, uh, I anyway, th- yeah, that's we're going down a weird <laughs> sidetrack here, but yeah, yeah. The point, the point so, is that the energy equation, well, I guess the point is the energy equation is complicated, <laughs> but so the other question, or not the other question, but the other thing is if the earth is a, like a living entity right and i i, I was re- i'm reading this book right now um reading this fascinating book uh at the uh, if you're interested in it uh the name of the book is uh the earth in human hands and it is written by you guys heard of this book no no but i'm interested i'm on board yeah he's on board uh shaping earth in human hands shaping our planet's future by david grinspoon uh, really interesting book. Um, I'm in the middle of reading it right now. Kind of, there's a chap. There's a little chapter about the Gaia hypothesis. I kind of 
Um, it's, that was the, uh, the muse, I guess you could say for today's, today's podcast episode. Um, but, but um, kind of talked about if the guy, if for the, in terms of the guy hypothesis, if, if mother, if, if, you know, the earth is a living entity, living entities reproduce. Right. That's one of the, that's one of the things to be mm. alive is reproduction. What, and this is what the author, uh, David Grinspoon argues would setting up a colony of Mars be reproduction. Oh, of mother Gaia. Oof. Possibly. Maybe, huh. maybe Gaia tried it once. And when the moon was formed, it didn't work. When the moon was fair, came crashing into us. Yeah. <laughs> but if we, if we terraform Mars, is that the biosphere reproducing? Well, I guess yeah, I take that back. Cause that's because the biosphere does reproduce all the time. But yeah, is that the know. earth uh, transferring its life to another entity? Yeah. I don't know. And our planet's just these like cells just waiting to accept life. Because the whole thing, and, and we, this is what we're or are we talk. the were we the virus? We're just going to infect all these cells that are in our well, If you watch the first Matrix, that's what they argue. Human beings are the, are the cancer for the earth, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting. And so, anyways, uh, we see basically there's these series of checks and balances where you have all these, that's the other thing about the, the Gaia hypothesis. We honestly, we didn't even get into this is you have these cataclysmic events. Like you have like the Chicxulub impact. You have a seven mile wide rock slam into the earth going Mach 50 and it throws things out of equilibrium, but it all kind of comes back eventually. It's like, there's some kind of self. It's like, it's almost like there's a self-writing uh, balances its yeah balances itself out. Life uh, finds a way. No, I go. had the Jeff Goldblum quote in the uh, the final <laughs> cast pool for uh, where how far this is a long one. How far are we in this one? I don't um, even know because we started right, a tiny bit later than normal. So yeah, but uh, but you see these cataclysmic events that hit Earth, and we just you know keep on coming back. You look at like these like uh, crazy volcanic events like uh you know the siberian traps which caused the the end permian mass extinction event uh that's, that's you know the worst mass extinction event in in that we've seen in earth allegedly of, allegedly 96 percent of life on earth just kicks the bucket and, and uh you know that is a good point because you know if you had something that kicked the bucket of say 99 percent of things on earth in the pre-Cambrian, we probably wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It was hard before. Yeah, yeah. And the other weird thing is, you know, in life on Earth, we do see these, these like the Cambrian life explosion. It's just like out of nowhere, just like, boom. Like, Ooh, I have a thought experiment for you. So we're yeah. wet, well into the pre-Cambrian. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we only have like 10 cells on Earth and eight of them die. Is that a mass extinction? 80% of life on Earth. See you later. Yeah. 
I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, it has to, be, has to be. Well, you know, plot goes to show you. Well, I, I, we're not even going to go down this road, but yeah, eighty percent of like that's more. That's that's about close, comparable to the the Chicxulub, the one that took out the dinosaurs. So, um, yeah, if eight of those cells kick the bucket, yeah, you only got two cells left, or two, two little microbes left. Anyway, just something to think about. Yeah, what is your definition of a? Um, but anyway, so you know, we talked about mass extinction events, um, but you know, you don't have to have a mass extinction event for life to start dying off. You know, that it's just they, they pick. You know, they they see this term mass extinction event for like the top five, but there's you know, life ebbs and flows. Yeah, you oh, times, dude, you know, Pete tried crack. <laughs> That's your what's that? That's your uh, your your hint, your thing for that's, what's that called? And Je- Jesse taught that to me. That mnemonic, I guess. Uh, yeah, Ordovician, Devonian, Permian, Triassic, Cretaceous, right? Oh, dude, Pete tried crack. Where did it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the big five. Big five, right there. Um, all right, so. Thought experiment, fun thing to think about the Gaia hypothesis. Yeah. Um, oh, and uh, in the beginning, like one of the first things you talked about is Jesse kind of said it wasn't um, like, well, you mentioned like in the beginning, it wasn't there. These, these guys took some heat for throwing this out. And I love people that throw out these ideas in, in science and just like these, like these, these ideas and just like yeah. throwing it to the dogs. Here we go. You know, and it's like, ding, ding, ding round one here, you know, and it's just like, that's how science works. We get these awesome debates. Um, you know, that's the thing about being a scientist. Number one, if you're out there, if maybe you're in school trying to be a geologist, I would say the number one thing that you got to do is develop a thick skin because people, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, no, actually the number one rule in science is don't take it personally. I would say yeah. that's probably. That's my best advice. Don't take it personally and develop a thick skin because people are going to come at you. I've had people come at me. Uh, it just, I mean, it's just how it works. It's just how it works. So don't take it personally. If someone's coming at your, your thought, you know, it's just like, good. That's, that's how, that's how the science works. You know, yeah. don't take it personally. Yeah. They're still cool people. They're just, they're just testing you. They're not te- they're testing your, your concepts. That's right, how it people- works. People get their and they've got their opinion of how it works, and they they, they don't like rocking the boat. Yeah, they don't yeah. like rocking the boat. Scientists tend to be yeah. very stubborn. I mean, it, their you, know, you, you do uh, even say just a PhD student. Okay, you just spent the last six years studying this thing, and you've come up with this hypothesis, and then like this is your first big thing. And then people poo-poo it and they're like, no, 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 that, that wouldn't work. And you're like, well, I just spent six years saying it would work. Like, look at it. Like, I didn't know you're wrong. And then it's like, yeah. well, the person you're telling is wrong has been in the establishment for 20 years. Well, they're just not used to seeing it the same way you saw it because they didn't do the experiments that you did. And, you know, you, you like Chris said, you have to have that thick skin and thick, thick enough skin to, mm-hmm. to say like, no, I think I'm right. Like it it's, o- it's okay better. that I'm right, but. Einstein didn't like quantum physics. We talked about that in the very beginning of the podcast and look where that went today. So, so. 
Anyway, great guy uh, though. Great guy. That relativity uh, stuff was dead on, but didn't like quantum physics. Yeah, I'm um, not. Sh- I'm not sure we went back to all the, the things we put a pin in, but I think we hit a so lot. Those of are the two main things. I wanted to just kind of throw that out there. Are humans part of of Gaia? You know, yeah. just uh, maybe Gaia was like it's, it's too cold. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. 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 Well, Gaia allowed us to 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 rise, and then she's like. That was a mistake. Yeah. Whoopsies. Let me fix this. <laughs> it's just like the first uh, blue green algae that started kicking out oxygen. Just, <laughs> you know, yeah. Oh, guys like I'll fix this. <laughs> um, um, so all right. Anyways, the so, Gaia hypothesis. I think cir- we've covered this enough. I want to circle back to. Oh, the song. I did, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. Oh. Uh, I, I, I got off on this tangent. So one last thing. The last thing. And then we can, we can end it. Uh, in, like it's at first it wasn't it wasn't well accepted but now um, now we have all these uh, in it's in the 70s it just seemed like things weren't as the sciences weren't as interdisciplinary as we are today we have fields called biogeochemistry now yeah you know and so the the last thing I'll say is the more that science becomes interdisciplinary and we start share the geologists start sharing ideas with biologists starts sharing ideas with atmospheric chemists and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, going down the line. We start to realize how intertwined everything on earth is. It's scary. All right. We just basically spent the whole land, whatever this podcast was, we spent the entire time talking about these intertwined systems of checks and balances, basically keeping things level for, for life on earth. And, you know, it's, it's the tectonics, it's the chemistry, it's the biology, it's the physics, all this stuff is, is all working in conjunction to keep earth a habitable place, even though some things kick in to overdrive and try to make it not habitable, but it has a way of fixing itself. And that's, yeah, these interdisciplinary fields, actually kind of gave a rebirth to the guy hypothesis, like noticing things that sea creatures produce sulfur and iodine, iodine, sorry, iodine. What am I British? Um, Aluminium. (laughs) Yeah, I like it. I like it. Uh, But some of these sea creatures produce this stuff. That's kind of like, you know, not exactly great, but necessary and the sea creatures produce it in the same exact quantities that is necessary for life on land. And they, it just like little things like this that are being noticed are being like, holy cow. Like it's not just, you know, oxygen and CO2. It's all these other little things that are actually kind of, kind of do line up. And if you think about it, like, yeah, I mean, we're here now and we're here now because of all these balances. So it, it has a lot to do with evolution too. Yeah, you but, know, because when this when this hypothesis was first thrown out, the uh, the you know um, they were like, well, evolution says this, you know, it's kind of evolution's kind of doing its own thing in its own little own little area, and it's just like, well, actually, this is what they're arguing was this is an addition to you know Darwin's um, you know Darwin's natural selection stuff. So yeah. in addition to all that stuff, there's a lot more, there's a lot of other things that are controlling a lot more environmental things. So yeah. And then you, know, you start getting down like chicken in the egg thing. Like, 
is this because yeah. of this or is that because of that? Well, like the first, the first uh, blue green algae that were kicking off oxygen, you know, things had to figure out a way like, oh my God, this oxygen thing is killing us. So <laughs> we need to figure out a way to live with this because it's not going anywhere anytime but soon. I can't, I just can't stop making it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so whether you like the oxygen or not, it's, it's oxygen's here to stay. All right. As long, you know, so things had to figure out a way. And, and so we, we learned not, we like collectively any of us, but the Royal, we, the Royal, yeah. we figure out a way like, okay, we got these chemical conditions and that are kind of hanging out in this range. We need to figure out a way to, to live within this tolerance because there's, there's, uh, you know, the other option is you die. Yeah. So this theory from don't want to die, you figure out a way to, you know, hang out in these conditions. Yeah. This theory from 50 years ago has been poo-pooed and brought back and poo-pooed and brought back. I don't know. But uh, so the whole thing a hundred times <laughs> in turn, uh, it goes back and forth, but it, <laughs> number one, it makes for a great podcast topic. Yeah, man. But number two, the more, like I said, the more interdisciplinary science gets, the more it's kind of like, huh? Yeah. Let's go back to this Gaia hypothesis thing, you know? Yeah. So, Oh, um, but real, real quick, I'm real mad at myself because I went to the beach yesterday with the fam just for like a day trip. Mm-hmm. I forgot to bring some flannel gas stickers. Oh, I know I had some beautiful coastal geomorphology. Uh, I know some, there. some good Instagram pictures, you know, but so I got, I got one in a, put one in a bottle, throw it out to sea. Oh, that oh. happens all the time. And Let I just, the gyres re- take it. Yeah. I write <laughs> just from sting on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> big fan of the podcast yeah <laughs> well so uh and then while we're on the topic uh or just before we finish up happy early 103rd birthday to james Locke. yeah the the first Not james lock love lock james love lock i'm sorry james love lock yeah. on july 26th james love lock will be 103 so that's awesome Keep up the good work, James. Maybe you can yeah. retire soon. I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you what, this dude, I look at a picture of him in his 90s. and Yeah, 91. He looks, he looks good. Super yeah. healthy. Like yeah. <laughs> in his 90s. So he's, he's living a balanced lifestyle. He is. Whatever you're doing, let he me is know. self regulating. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's, uh, yeah, he's got some kind of homeostasis going on inside his body. It's pretty good. There so. you go. Well, happy all. early birthday. Uh, your birthday's coming up in a couple of days, two weeks. So happy birthday. Happy early birthday, James Lovelock. Cool. I'm out of things to say. The podcast is over. Yeah. Well, hey. check check us out on our website. <laughs> you know, send us some emails uh, at uh, geologyflannelcast.com. You know, if you have any suggestions or questions or concerns. Um, also, you can check us out on Instagram, which is, again, why I regretted not bringing my stickers to the beach. But um, you can check us out on Facebook. Um, I don't know. We have merchandise on our website. You can buy yeah, some merch. Hey, we got a little website called Patreon that helps us out a fair oh. amount. We forgot yeah. like Patreon. Chris, yeah. Jesse, and I were just talking about how you know Chris is going to have to start podcasting in the dark because we need more Patreon members. Um. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh- <laughs> plus plus it'll it'll help. Uh, distract you from it, those of you who are patreons you'll get to see how how dirty the room is behind chris it hasn't been rented yet all right it's, it's the, the podcast studios are in the works all right got a baby coming in a couple weeks oh, like i got some other couple priorities weeks, a couple months come on yeah 
12 weeks. Good gracious. Now that I said that out loud and I'm starting to have an existential crisis, go to (laughs) patreon.com slash geology flannel cast. You can Uh, find Chris's baby registry. (laughs) Check out, email me for my baby registry. Uh, Yeah. Uh, we got different tiers of membership. Baby rock page. hammer and a baby hand lens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe like the baby rock hammer be like one of the squeaky ones. You hit it and squeaks. Ah, oh, there you go. No, yeah. I was thinking the one like Andy Dufresne had in uh, Shawshank Redemption. But how did, Ooh, what did he have? yeah, how did Andy Dufresne get out of the, the prison? What did he use to, to a rock hammer? How do you get a rock hammer in jail? He knows a man who can get things. Yeah. Come on, man. You got to go back to watching that movie. I haven't seen it in years. Um, that was actually, it was on the, it didn't make it into the final cut, but there was going to be in the, in the, the final cast theme song. I definitely tried to get something from Shawshank Redemption in the, uh, yeah. one of the opening clips. Pressure but... and time. Oh, man. Yeah. Is it in the beginning? Oh, no. I, but a- anyway, uh, yeah. Shawshank Redemption. Red gives him a rock hammer. And Red's all concerned because he thought he was going to use a rock hammer to kill somebody. No, like, I nope. do have something in the beginning about this from the yeah. Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Okay. I take that back. <laughs> One of the best, you know, geology related movies there are. <laughs> Go that far, but sure. Come on. Anyways. All right. Uh, they do uh, mention a lot of like piece of obsidian has no business doing it in a wall. Didn't anyway. uh, Stephen King originally write that? He did. Stephen King going going heavy with the geology. Yeah, maybe so we can get him on the podcast. Patreon website, patreon.com slash geology flannelcast, and check out the different tiers of membership we have. Come hang out with us uh, before the uh, every podcast every week. We got an awesome group. Uh, everyone's welcome. I'd love to have more people come and, and hang out. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Got a really awesome group of people. So, um, or you could become a, a Topaz tiered member, and we'll give a whole podcast episode devoted to you. So. Can you not sleep at night because you're worried about a geological topic? Become a Topaz member. Often. We'll stop that for you. We'll put you to sleep, right? Not like. <laughs> Brilliant marketing, that. Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Let me rephrase how that was stated. No, no. You nailed it the first time. You got it, buddy. Right on it. <laughs> Patreon.com slash geology final cast. <laughs> All right, now for the moment of truth. Come on, I've been singing it in my head since. The uh, yeah, of the podcast. I was gonna, I was trying to think of a, a different one, but you got to go with Warren G. Regulate. Yeah, man. Yeah, regulators mount up. Daisy World mount up. <laughs> mount up, flannel cast listeners. Yeah. We'll see you guys next week. Was, yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Brush your hair, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right, yeah. see you. Bye. Thanks for stopping. Bye.